Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about pancreatic cancer with Dr. James Farrell. Dr. Farrell is an associate professor of medicine and digestive diseases at Yale School of Medicine and the director of the Yale Center for Pancreatic Diseases. Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor of surgery and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. James, I thought we'd start by talking a little bit about pancreatic cancer. What exactly is it? How common is it? And how lethal is it? So everybody has a pancreas gland. It's uh, fairly deep in everybody's abdomen. It's uh, located behind the stomach. It's quite a difficult gland to get to. And on average, um, in the United States every year, anywhere between 45 to 50,000 people will develop a type of pancreatic malignancy. The most common type is what's called pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. There's also some uh, less common forms such as acinar cell carcinoma or endocrine neoplasms of the pancreas. But when we talk about pancreatic cancer, we're typically talking about pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, and that makes up the bulk of about 50,000 cases or so every year in the United States. Now, most people who think about pancreatic cancer, and I, I'm certain that our listeners will remember some of the people, some of the celebrities who have died of pancreatic cancer, and people like uh, Patrick Swayze and Steve Jobs, um, they did not die well. Uh, we were often told in the media that this is an aggressive cancer. Is that true? You know, it's partially true. It's, it's definitely an issue relating to the aggression of the cancer itself, but also how it presents. And so a lot of patients with pancreatic cancer uh, present late in the stage of their disease. So we broadly talk about an early stage that might be resectable by surgery. Uh, the next real kind of global type of stage would be what's called a locally advanced stage where it's involving some major blood vessels that would preclude surgery. And then the other large group of, or stages is what's called metastatic disease where it has spread outside the pancreas to involve the liver, for example, or sometimes up into the lung. Now, it, currently, only about 15% of all patients with pancreatic cancer present at that early resectable stage, and the remainder are kind of evenly divided between locally advanced and metastatic disease. And the reason for that is where it is, where the gland is, and where the tumors are. Uh, some of the tumors do originate in what's called the head of the pancreas, and also in the head of the pancreas is the drainage from the liver. So when people develop these tumors, they may not have pain per se, but they may go jaundice. They may go yellow because the tumor is obstructing uh, the drainage from the liver, and that's often the first symptom that they have, or sign rather, that they have uh, that there's something going on. And then several tumors often present out in the tail of the, of the pancreas, which is not really obstructing or blocking anything, and they can often present very late uh, in the stage. And so it's a big problem in terms of presentation. So when you're dealing with only about 10 to 15 percent of the population who present at a stage that could be potentially resectable by surgery. So 
that's really problematic then. I mean, because when we think about other cancers where we've certainly made progress, um, breast cancer, for example, it's all about early detection. It's all about finding those cancers at the earliest possible stage when they are the most treatable. So are we making any headway in terms of early detection in pancreatic cancer? Well, I would agree with you in terms of that there's a lot of emphasis, as there should be, in terms of early detection with pancreatic cancer. But that's not to say that there haven't also been some improvements in the area of treatment. But really, the onus is on us right now to improve our ability to detect this early. And we're seeing these in terms of numbers that are out there. So when you look at overall kind of incidence of cancers per se, pancreatic cancer is, is actually down on the list. When you, see, when you look at the uh, rates of cancer-related deaths, pancreatic cancer jumps up into the number four spot. Mm. And it's guesstimated that by 2025, it may be the number two or even number one cancer-related uh, you know, death etiology. And this is primarily due to a lot of uh, progress being, being made with other cancers, such as you mentioned, breast cancer and colon cancer. And really, uh, there have been some... Uh, there have been some um, initiatives in the world of early detection that are beginning, we think, to bear fruit. And rather than looking at the general population, what's going on is we're looking at uh, particular groups that are felt to be at increased risk for developing pancreatic cancer. And the three broad groups that we look at are um, things called pancreatic cysts, uh, a genetic or family-related uh, uh, risk of pancreatic cancer. And then more recently, there's been a lot of interest in the, in the realm of diabetes, per se, as a risk factor for, di- for pancreatic cancer. So let's break that down a little bit. I mean, certainly I think people might know if they have a family history of pancreatic cancer, and they hopefully know if they have a history of diabetes. How does anybody know if they have a history of pancreatic cysts that puts them at risk of pancreatic cancer? So this is the problem. And the vast majority of patients who develop pancreatic cysts, and cysts, just to remind everybody, are these fluid-filled balls, for want of a better word, uh, that lodge in the pancreas. The vast majority of those are asymptomatic. And they're picked up incidentally when individuals go for CAT scans or MRI scans or abdominal ultrasounds for often an unrelated uh, reason. So if someone has a kidney stone or a concern about their liver, uh, this, these cysts are often incidentally found in the pancreas. And depending on who you read and who you believe, uh, the incidence of these cysts ranges from anywhere from 3 to 4%, anywhere up to about 20 to 30% of the population. Definitely with advancing age, these cysts become more prevalent. Now, the vast majority of them do not develop into pancreatic cancer. And the issue is for us to try and figure out which ones actually do. And we have a variety of ways of looking at people's cysts on their pancreatic scans, on their CT scans or their MRI scans. A lot has to do with the size of the cyst, the conformation of the cyst, other features that are found on the CAT scan or MRI scan. I have to say, yes, they're very common. The vast majority do not ever develop into pancreatic cancer. But we have some pretty good guidelines now for following patients who do have pancreatic cysts to decide who should be followed, who doesn't need to be followed, who needs to undergo additional investigations such as an endoscopic ultrasound to take a closer look at the pancreas, what group of patients need to be seen by a surgeon for consideration for surgical resection. So we've learned a lot about pancreatic cysts. Yes, we understand that the vast majority of them never develop into cancer, and we're getting better at identifying the ones that do and trying to subselect them out. So let's delve a little bit more into that, because I can imagine that there may be listeners who have gone for a scan uh, and they 
for some other reason, their gallbladder or their kidney or whatever else. And an incidental note is made of a pancreatic cyst. And maybe their doctor said to them, you know, your gallbladder is fine, or yes, you have a kidney stone. And, and really, the pancreatic cyst was not something that anybody really paid much attention to. So who are the people who, if found to have a pancreatic cyst on an incidental finding on a scan, should be seeking further care, further follow-up, further surveillance? Well, the first thing to say is that really everybody should have a comment made about their pancreatic cyst. And it is quite alarming when patients first hear that they have something on their pancreas. You know, they've not really thought about that organ at all. And the first thing they hear is that, oh, there's actually something going on in your pancreas. I try and reassure people even before we've seen them per se to say that, again, the vast majority of these individual cysts will never mount to much. But we have to figure out which ones do. And so it's very much based on a variety of factors that are actually seen at the time of the CAT scan or the MRI scan. One of the drivers is the size of the cyst. So, you know, typically we're not that worried about one centimeter cyst, one and a half centimeter cyst. We get a little bit worried at two and for sure at three centimeter cysts. But we're also looking for evidence that these cysts have changed from being kind of fluid-filled containers to having a more solid appearance. And often that's something that can be picked up on uh, a CAT scan or an MRI scan. Whenever there's doubt about that or whenever there's doubt about the size or there's something that's maybe two and a half or three centimeters or larger, we often ask the patient to undergo an additional study called an endoscopic ultrasound which is an invasive type of endoscopy where we give a very good examination of the pancreas. We can see the cyst up close. We can see if the cyst is transforming itself into something more solid, and certainly that would be concerning. We also have the ability to biopsy the cyst and look at the fluid and look at the cells in the cyst. And so we put all these features together to really make a decision. Is this a cyst that we're going to follow? Or is this a cyst that really should be seen by a surgeon because either has cancer or is at risk for developing cancer within a short period of time. And one way we do that currently is we have a multidisciplinary conference where we sit around a table every week with our radiology colleagues, with our surgical colleagues, and ourselves in gastroenterology. And we discuss these patients and their cysts and decide which patients don't need to be followed which patients need to be followed and which patients should have surgery. So really, there's a lot of factors that go in. But the first thing I would say is that I think, yeah, patients who have a pancreatic cyst should at least get an opinion about the pancreatic mm -hmm. cyst, knowing that the vast majority will never mount to much. But I think it is important that we know about them and that we stratify patients to decide who needs follow-up and who doesn't. Now, and presumably, when you say follow-up, you mean with additional CAT scans? So then, because these, pati these patients have cysts that we know are at risk for growing in size and are certainly at risk for developing into a cancer, we've decided that we would like to follow them for a period of time. And that typically has involved repeating either an MRI scan or a CAT scan every year or every other year, depending on the initial size of the cyst, and then occasionally asking for an endoscopic ultrasound and biopsy for the worrisome cysts. Mm -hmm. Now, what about patients who have diabetes? That's the other category, one of the other categories you mentioned. There's a lot of people in the world who have diabetes. So should all of them be followed? Should all of them have some sort of evaluation of their pancreas? What should be the the take-home message for our listeners who are diabetics? 
So this is really an area that's evolving as we speak, and we're very conscious of the fact that there's a large number of diabetics in the population. Uh, but clinically, and now in their studies to back this up, what we've noticed is that there are certain patients who present to us ultimately with pancreatic cancer, and when we talk to them, we find out that they developed diabetes for the first time six months or a year or 18 months before uh, they developed their pancreatic malignancy, and perhaps at a time when there was no demonstrable malignancy, for example, in their pancreas. And it's led to us kind of scratching our heads going, well, is this a chicken or egg story? So what happened first? Is it because the patient had a tumor in their pancreas and that destroyed the ability to generate insulin? And often that's not the case. There are certainly patients whose uh, diabetes often improves after they've had their tumor removed. So it's still not clear whether it is uh, the diabetes uh, that results in the pancreatic cancer, but there is some thought that maybe there is an early pancreatic cancer, a small cancer that is secreting hormones or um, like a paracrine, what's called a, a paraendocrine effect, and that that may be resulting in diabetes. So this phenomenon has been noticed. It's been studied in relatively large populations. And the risk group that we feel uh, is at an increased risk are new onset diabetics in, in their middle age. So people are around the age of 50 or so, and sure with increasing age. And we feel that the risk of them developing uh, pancreatic malignancy is probably within the first three years after they develop this new onset diabetes. Now that's a very alarming statement to make because there's a lot of new onset diabetics uh, at, even at the age of 50 or so. But the risk um, is probably about 1% of that population will go on to develop pancreatic malignancy and we're certainly interested in studying their population. Okay. Well, we're going to learn a lot more about early detection of pancreatic cancer, how we diagnose it, and maybe how we treat it as well, right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about diagnosing and treating pancreatic cancer with my guest, Dr. James Farrell. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a science-led biopharmaceutical company dedicated to partnering with leading scientific companies, organizations, and the community to improve outcomes for advanced cancer patients. More at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about smoking cessation. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine, but it's a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers and operate on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications for smoking cessation, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. James Farrell. We're talking about diagnosis and treatment of pancreatic cancer. But even before we get to diagnosis and treatment, we're really starting to talk about early detection. And what Dr. Farrell was telling us right before the break is that Really, we think about three main categories. Those who have pancreatic cysts, often as an incidental finding on another scan that was done for some other completely uh, different reason. 
people who are diabetic, particularly those with new onset diabetes in their 50s. And then, James, the last big category was genetics. And I think a lot of people are beginning to understand that this whole role of genetics seems to be playing a role in many different cancers. As we learn more about the human genome and how mutations or mistakes in some genes can predispose people to cancer. So what's the scoop with pancreatic cancer? So I think for a long time, people were very appreciative of the fact that you know, family history and genetics played a role for sure in breast cancer and colon cancer. But it's really only in the last maybe 10 or 15 years that the penny has dropped with respect to uh, pancreatic cancer and familial risk. And so about 10% of all patients with pancreatic cancer have a family history of pancreatic cancer. And that's really defined as at least two first-degree relatives with pancreatic cancer. And often until you ask, you don't get the history Mm -hmm. because people just don't volunteer this information or they haven't thought about it or they're more preoccupied occupied thinking about other cancers that run in the family. But we think now about 10% of the pop- of patients with pancreatic cancer have a, a family risk of pancreatic cancer. We still don't fully understand all the genetics or what genes are being transmitted. The most common genetic abnormality that's found in these this group of people would be the BRCA2 mutation that goes along with the BRCA1, the PALB2, the ATM mutations. These are genes that are involved in DNA repair and so very intrinsic to you know, cancer development and are associated with other malignancies, as you know, such as breast cancer and ovarian cancer and even prostate cancer. And for sure, there are individuals who carry these genes who have a strong family history of pancreatic cancer. Uh, a lot of other issues have been identified. There are some uh, more uncommon types of genes and genetic situations such as Poots-Jaeger, the P16 mutation, and even hereditary pancreatitis. But really the big players in this area are individuals with a family history of pancreatic cancer or a family history and a genetic abnormality such as a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation. What about all of the patients that I see in my clinic, for example, who have a BRCA mutation but who don't necessarily have a family history of pancreatic cancer? Are those people people who should be followed or screened for pancreatic cancer? So this is actually a bit of a controversial area, and a lot has to do with just how high the risk is. And for sure, when you have those mutations and you do have one or two or three family members, your risk is is at a sufficiently high level that it justifies us kind of talking to you about pancreatic cancer screening and asking you to undergo, for example, an MRI scan or a CAT scan or an endoscopic ultrasound. When we have individuals who have uh, the BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation and don't have a family history, you know, often we're kind of faced with, well, if there isn't a very extensive family history or if they don't know. So we certainly counsel them. And right now, the recommendations would not favor them having pancreatic cancer screening. But that may change in the future because it is becoming an issue, especially as more and more individuals aren't really uh, clear about their extended family history and as more and more of this genetic testing takes place. Right. And I think, you know, another thing that is so important is that oftentimes people will say, well, you know, my mother, my sister, my brother, uh, someone had abdominal cancer. And it's really hard to know, well, is that stomach cancer? Is that pancreatic cancer? Is that colon cancer? Is that ovarian cancer? And it seems that that would make a big difference in terms of assessing their pancreatic cancer risk. And it does. And I think uh, in the current environment with a very active electronic medical record and ability to get access to those sorts of medical records, it's becoming easier to answer that particular question. But in former times, it was a great challenge and we just didn't know. But we do our best 
to try and get those medical records to try and confirm what exactly is going on in this particular family. Yeah. And, and, and so for these patients who are at increased risk, either because of cysts or because of diabetes or because of a genetic predisposition, is the follow-up really to do that CT scan to try to find these pancreatic cancers before they cause symptoms and before they become locally advanced or metastatic? Or are there other modalities that can be used? I mean, is there a blood test that can be used to follow these patients? So to date, there is no one single blood test or even stool test that can be easily done in a non-invasive manner to kind of pick out the patients who have either an early cancer or a pre-invasive cancer. There's a lot of things that may be coming to market. There's certainly a lot of things under investigation. Uh, But it's not an optimal time right now for blood tests, at least for pancreatic cancer. And a lot of that has to do with the nature of the disease and the difficulty we often have in actually finding pre-invasive cancers. So we did talk about cysts, and cysts are relatively easy to identify and find and often are pre-invasive lesions that can develop into cancer. But we suspect that the vast majority of pancreatic cancers in their pre-invasive form, the form we'd really like to find them at, are very difficult to image. And so that makes it a challenge when we're studying this and even evaluating patients at, at higher risk. So it really is a combination of the best tests that are available in 2018, and it's a combination of good quality imaging with MRI scans or CAT scans, and then some form of endoscopic ultrasound to really take a closer look at the pancreas. But yes, as I said before, there are a lot of um, studies ongoing to try and find a good non-invasive blood test for pancreatic cancer or for a variety of cancers that could be used at once. And we're hopeful that that will help us find, you know, patients uh, that we can then look for pancreatic cancer, not just in these high-risk groups, right? So we're talking about pancreatic cysts, we're talking about familiar history and diabetes, but even the larger general population who are also very interested in trying to know what their cancer risk is. Right. Now, you've mentioned a few times endoscopic ultrasound as a means of taking a closer look at the pancreas and sometimes even being used with biopsy to make a diagnosis. Tell us more about how that works exactly. So endoscopic ultrasound is a combination of regular flexible endoscopy as well as ultrasound technology. So the endoscope itself is passed down into the stomach and uh, then a little bit beyond often into the small bowel. And when there, we can look through both the stomach wall and the small bowel wall and get very, very good looks at the pancreas. In fact, we see it in probably its best definition. And so we can identify small cysts. We can identify small masses. We can also identify textural changes that really can't be picked up by by other types of imaging devices. And on top of that, then, we have the ability to safely biopsy these. So if there is a reason to biopsy it, we can safely pass a very small needle under ultrasound guidance into, for say, a pancreatic cyst or a pancreatic mass and gain tissue and then have a pathologist or a cytologist look at that tissue under a microscope and give us a diagnosis. So that's really been kind of the workhorse of diagnostics for pancreatic disease. What's exciting about that particular area right now is that we're layering on molecular genetics on top of those biopsies to make decisions about both diagnosis, so maybe identifying malignancies before they even show up as a cytologic abnormality. But also another exciting area is using the tissue from a pancreatic biopsy to make 
uh, unfortunately, a diagnosis of pancreatic malignancy, but then to go on to the next step and maybe to have an input on how that patient should be treated. Mm -hmm. And if there's a certain type of drug or class of drugs that this patient would benefit uh, as opposed to another patient. So that's a very active area of both clinical involvement as well as clinical research right now is using endoscopic ultrasound and biopsy to acquire tissue, not only just to make the diagnosis, but to be involved in, I guess, what's called precision medicine of this area to try and tailor treatments for individual patients based on their biopsy. And so so that's really exciting. But one of the, the things that struck me when we started our conversation is that only 15% of patients present early. And then you've got 42.5% who present locally advanced and the other 42.5% who present with metastatic disease. So how do you pick up those latter two groups and what's the treatment regimen for them? Because presumably for early stage, early stage pancreatic cancers, you'll move along to surgical resection and presumably uh, that will be the mainstay of therapy along with systemic therapy as needed. Is that right? That is correct. And there has been uh, a lot of advance, actually, in both our understanding of the treatment and treatment response of pancreatic cancer and why some pancreatic cancers don't respond effectively. There have also been some uh, advances in terms of treatment regimens over the last five to 10 years, specifically in the area of drugs such as uh, gemcitabine with now paclitaxel, as well as a regimen called falfirinox, which is now used for pancreatic malignancy. But also, I think what people have begun to uh, understand is that there are probably smaller subgroups of individuals of the order of two to 5% that may benefit from other classes of uh, medications. So one group that comes to mind are individuals with pancreatic cancer who, again, have these BRCA mutations, and they either have a BRCA mutation because they inherited it or their tumor acquired it over time. Hmm. And there's a class of drugs called PARP inhibitors that people are studying you know, in this area for individuals with these mutations that also have been tried in other malignancies that have these mutations associated with them. So I think one of the uh, hopes and optimisms for the future of pancreatic cancer is that we will identify more of these subgroups of individuals individuals with very specific molecular abnormalities that will allow us to tailor you know, s these treatments to these smaller groups rather than the kind of one size fits all. So in 2018, yes, most patients are being treated with combinations of gemcitabine, now paclitaxel, falfirinox, uh, for patients who've got locally advanced or metastatic disease, but increasingly smaller groups are kind of being targeted with these precision medicine techniques. And so does the endoscopic ultrasound, which allowed you to take a closer look at the pancreas, does that also give you a closer look at where this cancer is relative to other structures? So that when we think about locally advanced cancer, one that might be unresectable, that it gives us some information as to whether this is something that maybe we can resect versus something that we cannot resect. Correct. There's one area that we haven't really spoken about in terms of uh, how we stage these tumors called borderline resectable disease. And these are individuals who have tumors that are involving a portion of a vein or an artery. And maybe with treatment over time, uh, a surgeon may be able to resect that. And so that particular group is imaged carefully with a combination of CAT scans and MRIs initially. But often then endoscopic ultrasound comes into play a role to really more closely define how the tumor is affecting a vein such as the superior mesenteric vein 
or the artery or the portal vein. And it really has a very good role in defining that both before treatment and often after chemotherapy and radiation treatment to help really uh, advise and tell a surgeon what is the likelihood that this tumor has now come off the vein or come off the artery? And what is the likelihood that if the patient is brought to the operating room, that the tumor could be resected? So it's beginning to play a kind of a resurgent role in that area of staging as well for these patients who are close to being resected, but are treated up front and then ultimately taken to the operating room later on. So... So for the vast majority of pancreatic cancer, the mainstay of therapy is some sort of systemic therapy, now in the era of precision medicine, with much more targeted therapies than it had been. And then you've got this borderline resectable group, which might end up becoming resectable, and the early stage ones, which are resectable. For the early stage pancreatic cancers, are they treated with systemic therapy up front as well, or are they treated with surgery first? So traditionally, uh, the uh, treatment has been such that if a patient is surgically resectable based on a CAT scan or an MRI scan, uh, that the patient is taken to the operating room. Increasingly, what's happening, and there is an appreciation both from other malignancies, such as what goes on with how we treat rectal cancer and also esophageal cancer, there has been an appreciation uh, for the benefit of giving such patients who are clearly resectable treatment upfront and offering them chemotherapy for a period of three to maybe six months or so, and then reassessing them for surgical resection. Uh, we think this has biological benefits. It has the benefits of getting the treatment on board. Sometimes the patient, you can understand, is a little bit hesitant because they hear they have a surgically resectable tumor and they don't want to take any chances. But I think you're going to see more and more data in this area supporting this approach for our treatment of early resectable pancreatic malignancy. Dr. James Farrell is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Digestive Diseases at Yale School of Medicine and the Director of the Yale Center for Pancreatic Diseases. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.